morning, everybody. <clears throat> uh, well, as we have been kind of plowing through the book of Genesis and this launch out into this series called One Story, uh, last week we talked about four scenes. We went through four scenes. We talked about the Garden of Eden with uh, Adam and Eve. Then we talked about Cain and Abel. We talked about Noah and the flood. And then also we kind of wrapped up around the Tower of Babel story. <clears throat> Those stories charted both the downward spiral of the human race and also God's goodness in response to it. Because if you remember, Abraham, um, uh, Adam and his descendants, they disobeyed. And then God begins again. Uh, God blesses Noah, but then things go from bad to worse there. Then at Babel, people make this proclamation. They said, we will make a name for ourselves. We can be kind of like God, is what they were saying. And we wonder as we read this progression or downward spiral, really, we wonder, will God run out of patience at some point in time? Is his dream of community with human beings that are made in his image, is it beyond hope? Is it lost? Is it beyond repair? No, it's not. Because God will begin again. He'll work now with one man, one man who was uh, originally named Abram, God changes his name to Abraham, meaning the father of many nations. Um, for simplicity's sake, I'll probably just call him Abraham most of the day today rather than flipping back and forth. But God will form a covenant with Abraham. And covenant is kind of our key word for today. Now, interestingly enough, we know a lot more about ancient covenants today than we knew like 100 years ago. Uh, archaeologists have uncovered large numbers of covenant writings that they found in ancient Hittite writings from the 13th and 14th century BC. So here's a little working definition of this word covenant that we'll be talking about a lot today. A covenant is a means to establish a binding relationship where none existed before based on faithfulness to a solemn vow. Now, sometimes covenants were made between a more powerful partner and a less powerful partner, like a king and his subjects. That's called a, <clears throat> a unilateral covenant. <clears throat> but sometimes there were bilateral covenants where both parties agreed to this covenant as equals, like a covenant of friendship. A little later on in the Old Testament, we see a covenant friendship between David and Jonathan. <clears throat> but with Abraham, something really remarkable is happening because God himself is entering into a covenant with human beings, ordinary human beings. So today we're gonna to walk through Abraham's life and we're just gonna focus in on four encounters that Abraham has with God that will help us understand the nature of this covenant and it will get clearer and it gets deeper. All right, so in Genesis chapter 12, here's how it begins. <clears throat> the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, God says. I will bless you and I will make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you, he says. So God has a single command for Abram here. Leave, <laughs> leave your country, leave your people, leave your tribe. Leave your father's household. Leave everything that's safe and familiar to you, including, including your old gods. See, Abraham had not known God at this point. Matter of fact, a little bit later in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, it says, Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, father of Abraham, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped 
other gods. So God is saying, I want you to leave all that behind. There's an Old Testament principle that's shown here that could be known as the principle of separation. God's, God is saying, I want you to be separate now from other gods and other cultures that are built around those gods. I want you to separate yourself from your old values, your old priorities, your old identity. I want you to separate yourself from all that and separate yourself to me for this mission that I have for you. So God says, leave. Leave it all. Where? To a land that I will show you. It's a little vague, isn't it? <laughs> There's just not much there. Not much to tell Sarah, and women like to know details about these kinds of things, don't they? Imagine that conversation. Where are we going? I don't know. Well, how do we know we're going to get there? Well, God will tell us. God who? Remember, they don't know God at this point. It says, God, uh, God, you know, I didn't get his last name. I, I just, I didn't even think about that. Now, understand the choice that Abraham faces here. So just a little background. Um, Abraham is not some uncouth nomad with nothing to lose. No, he's a prosperous merchant at this time. It's, it says that he's accumulated enough to have a whole fleet of servants. And he lives in an urban, kind of an urban setting in, in civilized Mesopotamia, which is one of the capital cities of the ancient world. So there, Abraham is known, he's respected, he's successful, and he's secure. And he's told to go to some barbaric wilderness called Canaan, where he has no land, no network, no connections, and no prospects. This is financial, vocational, maybe literal suicide for him. It's a big, big step. Now, on the other hand, there is this promise from the voice of God that says he's going to now be part of something way, way bigger than him, way, way bigger than he can even imagine. And the essence of this promise really consists of a single word. And as we read through those verses, you always want to be looking out for, for words that get repeated a lot because very often they carry very important freight. So what's the word that gets used that repeated five times? It's the word bless, isn't it? Bless. Remember, initially, God wanted to bless Adam. God wanted to bless Noah. Now he's saying, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation, he says. Now, we already know from Genesis 11 that Abraham and his wife Sarah have no children. So God wants to initiate a covenant of blessing with Abraham. Now, I mentioned earlier there's two different kinds of covenants. A uh, unilateral covenant was between a stronger partner and a weaker partner. This is, now, this covenant between God and Abraham, is it a unilateral covenant? Yeah, it is. God is like way up here, and Abraham is just an ordinary guy down here. So it's a unilateral covenant. Now, there were lots of these types of covenants in the ancient world, and the stronger partner was always after something from the weaker partner in this whole covenant thing, whether it was water rights or land to graze cattle, whatever it was that he was after. The stronger partner always had, a, an, had an agenda in mind. So here's the question. What does God the stronger partner here, what does he get out of the deal? By now he knows the human race. For the first 11 chapters of Genesis, they've made themselves perfectly clear what they're like. He knows the human race means heartache and ingratitude and corruption and all kinds of sin. So what does God get out of this deal? He gets someone to bless, someone to pour out love and affection and warmth upon. 
This is why all through the Old Testament, the, the writers of Scripture are undone. They're staggered by the fact that God would actually enter into a covenant with ordinary human beings. The Old Testament refers to the covenant 285 times. That's a lot. And the God of the Old Testament is always known as the God of the covenant. Now, sometimes people think that when Abraham was called and when Israel was called to be the chosen people, it means that they were chosen to be God's favorites or they were kind of given the inside track on how to get to heaven and all that. Like they're chosen and other people are rejected. That's not the case at all. From the very beginning, from the very first encounter, Abraham and his descendants were chosen to be kind of a model community so that that might cause all people everywhere, the whole world to be intrigued by and choose to love and follow the God of the covenant. You could put it like this. God so loved the whole world that he came into a covenant with Abraham that through him all the world might be blessed through him and his family. Now Paul writes about this in the book of Galatians, all the way later on, thousands of years later in the New Testament. Galatians 3, it says, the scripture announced the gospel in advance to Abraham when it said, all nations will be blessed through you. So the Great Commission doesn't really start in the New Testament, really starts in Genesis 12, doesn't it? So God comes to Abraham, he says, leave everything and go where I tell you. Now, Abraham could have stayed home because life in Haran was safe, it was comfortable, and it was secure. To leave for the wilderness is just really a bad career move in every way. Now in verse four, the whole story of Abraham, maybe even the story of the entire Old Testament, kind of hinges on a single phrase, two Hebrew words, Yalek Avram. It means Abraham went. Abraham went. In verse four, it says, Abraham left as the Lord told him. He just picked up and left. Abraham was 75 years old when he chose to bet the farm on God. So let me just pause and ask you a question. Do you ever trust God like that? Do you ever take steps of faith like that? Is God asking you to leave anything? Any sin? Any idol? Any fear? Is God asking you to go someplace, maybe into a new ministry or a new adventure of reaching out to friends with God's love? Maybe a new level of giving. Do you ever trust God in these amazing, big step sort of ways? Now, we do need to understand that Abraham and Sarah are not pillars of spiritual perfection. In uh, verse 11, uh, shortly after that little episode, here's what it says. As he, meaning Abraham, as he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarah, look, you're a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him, then we can have her. So please tell them you're my sister. Then they'll spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. These are the, the first words in scripture recorded of Abraham. It's not a great moment in the history of husbanding, to be honest with you. <laughs> So Sarah ends up getting stuck in an Egyptian, in Pharaoh's harem, and uh, God has to intervene. And Pharaoh ends up giving a lesson on integrity to the man of God, Abraham, here. And the lesson doesn't appear to strike real deeply uh, because later on, Abraham does the same song and dance with another king, King Abimelech. Now, he does get some things right, Abraham does. 
in chapters 13 and 14, he gets some things right as, as it relates to handling possessions wisely. Uh, he acts generously and he trusts God to be the provider for him. Uh, but later on, two kings come to Abraham and they represent two different ways of dealing with stuff and possessions. First one, one of them is the king of Sodom and he offers Abraham the spoils of war, pretty significant amount of stuff. He offers that to him on the condition that Abraham will owe him allegiance. And Abraham feels like this is not what God wants him to do. So at great cost to himself, he says no. And he pays a lot to the king of Sodom just to remain free. Good move. The other king is a fascinating figure. He's only mentioned briefly in the Old Testament and his name is called Melchizedek. Melchizedek. In uh, chapter 14, it says, Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he'd recovered. Now, most of us have heard of this concept called tithing. This is the first recorded instance of this taking place in scripture. When you give, when you tithe, you are living in covenant. You're trusting the, in the blessings of God and becoming a blessing for other people in taking these kinds of steps. So Abraham gets some stuff wrong and he gets some stuff right, but he needs to find out more about this whole covenant deal. So the second key encounter that God has with Abraham comes in what might be referred to as a DTR. Some of you might remember from a while back, some young people would talk about having a DTR, means define the relationship. Uh, the way it works is kind of like this. When a young man, a young woman have been hanging out for a while and they've had plenty of Netflix and chill nights, one of them, one of them finally comes to the place where they say, they click the thing off and they go, we need to have a talk. We need, to, we need to see if there's, I need to know if there's a future here. Like, is there some kind of commitment in place here? It's time to paint or get off the ladder. <laughs> we need a DTR. We need to define the relationship. Well, God's gonna have a little DTR with Abraham here. And we do need to, to understand this. To enter into a covenant back then, really at any time, but especially back then, very, very serious business. The Hebrew phrase to make a covenant literally is to cut a covenant, to cut a covenant. When people made a covenant, there would be a ceremony that was connected to it. One of the things that they would do is take some animals and literally cut them in half and lay the pieces next to each other. They would go for, for what was known as a covenant walk. They'd pass between the pieces of the animal and the symbolic meaning of this walk was, may this, here these animals, may this be my fate if I don't uphold my end of the promise, my end of the, the covenant here. In the book of Jeremiah, quite a bit later, one of the prophets that, that writes in chapter 34, it says, God speaks, says, those who have violated my covenant, I will treat like the calf they cut in half and walk between its pieces. Covenants were serious business, serious business. They're saying, you can trust my word on this or may pain come to me. That's what they're saying. Now there's a tiny reflection of this in our day. Uh, when I was growing up and we're trying to make a promise to one of your friends, you say, I promise, cross my heart, hope to, 
die, right? And if you're really, really serious, say, promise, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. It's serious business. Covenant making is serious business. Now, when someone violated a covenant back then, the covenant is not voided. It's not torn up and thrown aside. No, no. Sanctions come into play. And so things get pretty unpleasant for the violator of the covenant. So Abraham asks God very honestly. He says, how can I know that I'm going to gain possession of the land that you're promising me? How do I know you're going to come through? So here we go. God speaks in, in uh, chapter 15. The Lord told him, okay, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. And then in verse 17, let's take a look at who it is that does the covenant walk here. Verse 17, after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. Okay, now in the Old Testament, smoke and fire represent whose presence? That's God's presence. So the fire and the torch pass between the pieces of the animal. That's God. God is so desirous for Abraham to trust him, for somebody to trust him, that he takes the oath. He's not requiring Abraham to take the oath here. He takes the covenant walk. He says, Abraham, I want you so much to trust me. I'll take the covenant walk. May this happen to me if I don't keep my promise to you, because I am a promise-making, promise-keeping God. God takes the walk. Now, I want to make one other point here uh, as it regards the connection to the New Testament. In, in understanding the covenant like this, it helps us to understand a little bit better when Jesus speaks to his friends, his disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper. He says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, he says. See, the old covenant between God and human beings had been shattered by man, not by God, by man. Somebody had to pay. A covenant had been violated. We violated it. Jesus, in his goodness and grace, chose to pay. All right, go back to Abraham. God says he's going to make a new community out of Abraham's descendants. It's only one problem. What's the problem? There's no descendants. <laughs> he has no children, has no kids. And he's in his 80s, and Sarah's in her 70s. So in chapter 16, verse 1, Sarah, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarah's proposal. Seems a little passive on Abraham's part. He doesn't put up a big fight there, you know. He's like, well, okay, if you think it's the best thing to do, I'll take one for the team here, okay? Verse 3. So Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened, parenthetically, this happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan, 10 years later. Now, this is not what he's doing here. What they are doing here is not covenant behavior. So this is a stumble here. And Ishmael is born. He's not the child of promise. So God comes again in another round of clarity. And in Genesis 17, 1, it says, when Abram was 99 years old. Remember how old Abram was when he left Haran? 75. It's been 24 
years. Go on. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you'll be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant to, with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Imagine being Abraham and hearing God say these words to you. And then God says, there's going to be a sign of this covenant, a sign of this. And the sign will be called circumcision. Abraham says, how come Noah got a rainbow? I'd rather have a rainbow. Not a rainbow, maybe a cool secret handshake or something like that. Anything else? But even with that, even with this, verse 23, it says, Abraham obeyed that very day. He obeyed that very day. Even with that, neither him nor Sarah had perfect faith. In fact, they both laughed at what God said. Abraham laughs first. Then in chapter 18, look what it says, verse 10. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out, my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? A little sarcasm there. Abraham's 99. Sarah is 89. No Viagra in those days, just pure God miracle here. That's it. One year later, this child is born. The child of promise is born. A year later, just as God said. They're told to name the child Isaac. You know what Isaac means? It means he laughs. God told them to name the child, he laughs. I love the statement by Sarah in Genesis 21.6. Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear of this will laugh with me. And everyone did laugh. The child is born in the geriatric ward with Medicare picking up the tab. <laughs> Everybody laughs because Sarah is the only woman in Publix buying Pampers and Depends at the same time. Everybody laughs because Sarah only gets strained vegetables because nobody in the family has any teeth. Now, that's all, that's all joy, but in time it gets pretty somber, and it gets pretty serious. Genesis 21.9. Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had, had born to Abraham was mocking, and she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Notice how she doesn't even call them by name. Doesn't say Hagar and Ishmael. She says, that slave woman and her son. Truth is, we do that when we sin against people. We try to dehumanize them, try to forget that they're real people. We don't call them by name. We don't look them in the eye. So Hagar is sent off into the desert with her son, with Abraham's son. They have very, very little chance of survival there. Now look in verse 17. God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. 
Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Look, God was with the boy as he grew up. There's a phrase that we've seen a few times so far. God was with him. God was with Enoch. God was with Noah. Now God is with Ishmael. Listen, Sarah and Abraham may have rejected Ishmael, but God does not. He doesn't. He's not going to be part of the model community that God had planned, but God is just as concerned for him as he is for Isaac. Now it brings us to the fourth defining encounter here with God and Abraham. It comes in Genesis chapter 22. Very simply says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Say those words with me. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. The writer wants us to know here what Abraham does not yet know, that this is only a test. The writer knows that the strain of the story will be too much for a reader if we don't know in advance that this is only a test. So God says, Abraham. And now when Abraham speaks up and says, here I am, he's not giving God geographical information. He's saying, speak, Lord. I will obey. I will listen and I will obey. I'm available to you. All of his adult life, Abraham has heard the voice of God. Now the voice speaks to him once more. This will be the last time that Abraham hears the voice of God in his life. Verse 2, God says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there. You know, this is the first time in, in the whole Bible that the word love is used. And it talks about a, a man's, a father's love for his son. And this is not just his son. This is the promise of a dream, isn't it? God was going to create the new community from this child. There was no one else. There is no one else. So for three days now, Abraham walks, plods his way towards Moriah with his child. Scripture says that he gives the wood to Isaac to carry. And then there's this little detail. It says, but Abraham carries the knife and the fire himself. Because those are things that a young boy could hurt himself with. And it's a father's job to protect his son. So will he still trust God, the God of the covenant, when he doesn't understand this at all? The little boy Isaac asks in verse 7, he says, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham says, God himself will provide the, the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. Keep saying, my son, my son my son. Well, they come to the place and the writer keeps telling us about Abraham's obedience. So he builds the altar. He takes the wood. And now it's time. And Abraham holds Isaac, the promise of his lifetime, the dream of God, the reason that he left Haran in the first place. His only son, Isaac, whom he loves. I, mean, I can hardly imagine this. He binds up his son, so there'll be no struggle at the end. And he picks up his son, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, the promise of God, and he holds this same little baby boy that he held on the day it, he came out from Sarah's womb, the little body that he fed and bathed and rocked and told stories to. And he places that little body on the altar, and he reaches towards heaven with a knife to destroy in one movement the child that he had helped create, the dream of his lifetime. And with it, all of his hope and all of his joy and all of his future would be gone. And then God steps in and says, Abraham, stop, stop. 
Abraham says, here I am. Same words he said at the beginning of the story. Here I am, God. Like, where else would I go? What else would I do? Here I am. I'm available. God says, do not harm your son. Don't do it. Now look at this. Verse 13. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So in a world that's filled with infant sacrifice, with human sacrifice, God makes it really clear that it's intolerable for him. And God's saying, now I know and now you know that you honor me and that you trust me. And Abraham breathes again and he receives his son back. And he knows that God can be trusted. He's walked with God all these years. Now, it's intriguing to me. Abraham prophetically says, God will provide the, the, the lamb for the sacrifice. And God does provide. But it's not a lamb. It's a ram. So is that just a mistake? Is that just a misfire? Or is this prophetic utterance about something else? Scroll ahead a couple thousand years and look what happens on the banks of the Jordan River. John chapter 1, it says, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God does provide the ram, the, the lamb for the sacrifice, but not just here for Abraham, but for the whole world, the one who takes away the sin of the whole world. God's been weaving this story, this one story, from beginning to end, and it's all connected in ways that just amaze us. One story. A little side note here. They, they were told to go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice Isaac. Um, in the ancient world, 4,000 years ago, Mount Moriah is not an actual mountain. It's a series of hills in a region that would later become Jerusalem, sat on those hills. The hill that, that Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac on could be the same exact hill that Jesus the Lamb of God gave his life on thousands of years later. Well, Abraham goes on to die an old man, and there's a poignant scene at his grave. Because you know who buries Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac together? They're together in Scripture for the first time since they were separated at Isaac's infancy. These two brothers are together at the death of their father. These two brothers, both of whom God loved. Isaac, father of the Jewish people. Ishmael, father of the Arab people. I was thinking about that this week. Our world still waits for the children of Abraham, the children of Isaac, the children of Ishmael, to live like brothers under a covenant of love. For God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. His community is built on this covenant. And next week, we're going to look more deeply at this covenant as it unfolds in the life of Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, because it keeps getting better. Okay? Why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray. God, we thank you for the richness of your word and how it's so connected from beginning to end in ways that just baffle us sometimes. But God, we, we see your power at work and we see your truth at work. Help us, Lord, to incline our understanding towards you and towards your word so that you can breathe new life into us and energize us by your word. Lord, the prophet says, your word is life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Help us to feed on your word, Lord, 
and thank you for it. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right.